Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. turn as we do most weeks at this time to new developments in the world of COVID-19. It's a segment we call Corona Calls. And our guest most weeks is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. By my reckoning, uh, we, we are in the position where by the time we speak next week, uh, at least some boosters will likely be available that have been reformulated to address more recent variants. So I thought maybe we could start this morning by rounding up what evidence we have uh, of how effective those vaccines will be against the variants that are currently in circulation. Sure. Let me begin sort of at the beginning, and that is with influenza, because it will really inform us in terms of how we're making decisions about our vaccines be how well they're going to work for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. With influenza for decades now, we try to predict what new strains of influenza will be arriving for the next season. And we do fairly well with that. Um, we base that primarily upon what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere. We don't every year do exhaustive phase one, phase two, and phase three trials on the minor modifications we make of the influenza vaccine for each year because the, it's fairly predictable how well the particular vaccine is going to behave. Now, if we take that thinking to SARS-CoV-2, it's, there's some similarities here. Unfortunately, we don't have what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere to inform us about what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere with COVID because it's pretty uniform around the world. But the minor modifications we're making in these and the new vaccine that's coming out hopefully this week um, is really just a minor modification from what we've been doing all along with the vaccines. So we're, we haven't gone through phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. That's not to say we haven't gone through trials with these. We have, but they haven't been the exhaustive large trials that many remember from 2021 and 2020. So where, where we are right now is we're with, we have a new vaccine based upon the predominantly circulating variant that was going on in the spring and early summer. That's called uh, BA.1.5. It, um, excuse me, XBB.1.5. It um, is, looks like, and you and I talked about this last week, Brian, it looks like this particular vaccine is going to be very effective against now the predominantly cous changed cousins of XBB.1.5. So it looks like we're going to have a very good vaccine coming up, and I'm very excited about it. Mm. Um, it does not appear to be unanimous, uh, 
Paul Offit, who is uh, no no vaccine skeptic. He's on the advisory panel for the FDA on uh, which vaccines to approve for which uses. Uh, gave a, a somewhat controversial interview where he suggested already pe- already vaccinated people under the age of seventy five might want to take a pass on this one. Uh, what, what what did you make out of his of his interview? Well, Paul Offit, um, I think, does terrific work, uh, and he's a very good thinker and steeped in vaccinology. So I always pay very careful attention to what he has to say. I think what he's saying is not about the efficacy of the vaccine. It's about the need of the vaccine. If you look at who's gotten the uh, previous vaccine last October and then again in the spring, it's it's primarily there. It was primarily there to help older people, 65 and over, because that's the group that has, has the most morbidity and most mortality. And yet we had, I think it was 43, we have about 43% of people in that category in the United States got vaccinated. That means the majority of people in the United States who really needed that didn't get it. I think Paul Offit's, I think the way Paul Offit is trying to frame this is that there's a group of people, particularly those 75 and over, that are at greatest risk for hospitalization and death. And this is the group that we need to focus on. When you look at younger groups, one can quibble about whether it should be 65 or 60 uh, or 75. But when you look at younger people uh, with COVID, its role is much less important in terms of reducing public, reducing morbidity and mortality. This is the public health view, and that is what we can, what should we be doing with our resources that can have the greatest bang for the buck? So you asked if I agree with Paul Offit or not. I sort of do. I certainly agree that our focus needs to be on older population. I would start younger. I would have started said clearly at 65 or more, this is the group that really needs to get the vaccine. Certainly anybody at any age who's immunocompromised, who has otherwise serious chronic problems that puts them at risk for greater morbidity and mortality from the virus. But where I would differ a little bit is I wouldn't discourage anybody at a younger age from getting it because it looks like it's going to work very well. It's going to prevent you from getting sick. Um, I've talked to lots of people and we know lots of people who get quite sick uh, from this, not needing hospitalization and death, but they wind up going to the ER because they're quite ill. This is more serious than influenza, although it may be just a minor cold in many people. So I would not want to discourage people at a younger age from getting it. There's plenty of vaccine, uh, but I really would want to encourage those at highest risk to get it. It seems like three years into the pandemic, a, a narrow focus on hospitalization and death is missing a lot of the picture. Like there's, there's a concern about long COVID, about chronic disease resulting from an infection. Um, and you're, you're rolling the dice every subsequent time you get infected. It's not like if you don't get it after your first infection, you're clear. But also, I mean, you know, we've had COVID move through my household. Um, neither I nor my wife, we were infected on separate occasions, like had to go to the emergency room thank God, but (laughs) we had to find separate sleeping arrangements for close to two weeks each time. We had to 
upend all of our plans. We had to take massive precautions to avoid passing it on to people who might be more vulnerable on, on top of the fact that we were sick and miserable. Um, those are all things worth avoiding. I mean, that's, that's why I plan to go get the booster as soon as it's available. Well, well said. Um, your point about long COVID is really a very important one. We know that uh, the vaccine does reduce one's risk of getting long COVID, and that's another big argument for it. So that's why I, I am a strong proponent like you, Brian, of uh, encouraging people to get the vaccine. I, I wish the vaccine worked to prevent us from getting infected for months and months and months. But it only does that for maybe a month, two months, or three months. What it the way I think everybody needs to look at the vaccine is that it prevents people from getting really sick and winding up, as you said, in the ER, which is not a pleasant experience, or worse yet, winding up in the hospital or tragically dying. All right. Uh, let's bring in some questions from our listeners now. If you want to ask yours over the phone lines, the number is one 800 958 to put in your corona call to Dr. John Swartzberg. That's 1-800-958-9008. Since we're on the topic of boosters, uh, let's start with one from the inbox from Karin in Petaluma, who uh, is very eager to get her shot, apparently. She says, I have a COVID shot scheduled for this coming weekend, September 16th. I imagine it will take time for the new vaccines to roll out once they're approved, presumably this week. So when I go in for my shot this weekend, how do I know that I'm getting the new one? Is there something obvious on the label of the vial that I can ask to see to be sure? Yes, there there will be. I don't know what, what there will be in terms of whether it's color-coded along with information about what it is or just the information of what it is. So she should definitely check. I think it's a good idea when you go in to get any vaccine, um, frankly, for any medication to just pause and ask the pharmacist, could you please check or let me see and make sure this is exactly what I'm supposed to be getting or I want to be getting. So that's a good idea. The other, when, when, you, when you said that Karen has her, her jab already scheduled, I sort of smiled because my wife and I scheduled to get the RSV vaccine uh, over the weekend. And uh, my wife called to just make confirm at one of the pharmacies confirmed that uh, the, um, the pharmacy would have the vaccine. They said, oh, gee, you know, we didn't get a shipment. And uh, so don't come in and you can come in on Monday and we, we should have it by then, but maybe best to call first. Uh, so it looks like the pharmacies are scheduling the vaccines before they even know that they're going to be getting them. And of course, Karin is scheduled to get the COVID vac the new COVID vaccine before even the CDC has given its imprimatur for it. Mm. Uh, on a related note, Martha wrote in No City Mentioned to say, I'm looking to find the Novavax booster. I wasn't able to find one when I sought it many months ago. Uh, in other parts of her email, Martha writes that she had bad reactions to the mRNA vaccine. So she's hoping for better luck with Novavax. Um, she is currently only seeing Moderna and Pfizer on offer in local offer in local uh, vaccination sites here in the Bay Area. Any tips on finding a place that's doing Novavax? Well, all I know is that Novavax will be coming out later than the two mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. Um, 
how much later is not clear, but it looks like maybe a matter of just a very few weeks. So I think that um, she's going to have to wait until she hears in the news that Novavax is now being distributed. A lot of people are interested in getting Novavax over the mRNA vaccines because Novavax is a more is made more in a more traditional fashion, and that may give them more comfort. Um, there's it's a different uh, while it presents the spike protein to the to our immune system just like the mRNA vaccines do. It presents it in a little different way, and some people think maybe that's a good thing, and I'd get a better response to that. We don't have any evidence for that. Um, we have some preliminary evidence that uh, Novavax will work very well. Um, I think we would be quibbling over whether Novavax will work better or worse than the mRNA vaccines. But there are people who are very interested in getting that. But I think it's going to be coming out just um, maybe a very few weeks later. All right, let's bring some of our callers into the conversation. Uh, let's start in Oakland, where Marguerite is on the line. Good morning, Marguerite. Good morning. Um, thank you for this program. I uh, recently read an article about uh, insurance actuaries noticing that excess tests are very high. And alarmingly, they're among, often among younger people. <clears throat> and I'm wondering, I have a feeling this is connected to COVID. I'm wondering if the doctor thinks that might be related to long-term effects of COVID or perhaps a deterioration of medical care during the pandemic. I'm wondering uh, what the professor thinks about this. Thank you. Sorry, Marguerite, you said excess tests? Deaths. Excess deaths. Deaths. Uh Thank you. Dr. Schwartzberg? Right. Well, Marguerite, um, you're absolutely correct. During much of the pandemic, we almost all of the pandemic, we've seen the deaths that we've been acquiring to um, exceed what historically we've seen. And that's where we get this idea of excess deaths. And so we've seen it since really um, very early in 2020 when COVID was ravaging the country. The good news is that in the last few months, we've seen excess deaths pretty much no longer exist. That is, we're running pretty close to where we typically would see the deaths in the United States right now. Uh, the data that we have is is not contemporary with where we are in time right now. It's back a few months. So clearly in the spring, the data that we have, in the early summer as well, the data that we have is that excess deaths were were not existing at that point in time. So COVID's impact upon deaths in the United States wasn't seeming to be where it had previously been. I think that's, I'm really glad you brought that up, Marguerite, because that's really an important observation. Um, Whether the current rise in the number of deaths that we're seeing now since um, late July, early August is going to continue and whether that's going to be sufficient to cause excess deaths in the United States, just no way of knowing at this point. In terms of why we saw excess deaths, I think it's due to all of the reasons you mentioned, Marguerite. Um, It was due to our healthcare system being overwhelmed and people not being able to get the same level of care. 
It was due to the fact that when our health system was overwhelmed, people were not able to um, be treated the same ways in the hospital. I mean, I still remember this vivid memory of uh, people in hallways on ventilators in the spring of 2020. It's, it's due to the fact that people were avoiding getting a lot of regular care, screening tests, vaccines, etc. Um, and I'm just listing a very few of the thing, reasons why we were seeing excess deaths, independent of COVID itself causing clearly causing lots of excess deaths. So that's why when you hear people like me who watch this on a sort of live and breathe this stuff, um, say that things are so much better now, even though we're seeing a rise in cases, is because from a public health perspective, we're just not seeing the same consequences of COVID that we were seeing throughout much of the pandemic. And I just pray that this will continue. I I have a follow-up on that, Dr. Schwartzberg. It, it seems to me if the the disease itself over the course of a couple of years kills 1.1 million people in this country who are disproportionately older, medically vulnerable um, people you might expect to have a higher chance of dying in a given time frame anyway, wouldn't you expect mortality rates in the ensuing years to drop lower than normal, below trend, because the, the remaining population is younger and healthier? That's absolutely right. And epidemiologists talk about that and have words for describing that phenomenon. Um, tragically, what's happened is what, you do, what you've described, and that is the people who are most vulnerable to dying uh, from COVID, a lot of those folks did die. So in a sense, we have a healthier population. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that's not to um, diminish the effects of COVID on otherwise healthy people. We certainly have seen COVID take the lives of people at all ages and all, and, and all levels of health, including good health. Even with this current swell of cases we've been seeing since July, we've seen pediatric deaths, particularly pediatric deaths in the ages below five, um, rise above where we would like, where we not like to see them, but where we typically see them. So COVID, while it, it certainly did um, take the lives of, disproportionately the lives of people who were compromised in many ways, including um, all the diseases that we hear about all the time, such as chronic lung and heart disease, immunosuppression, et cetera. But it also took the lives of a lot of otherwise healthy people. Um, we're not seeing that as much now, except the disturbing bit of information I mentioned about pediatric cases. Let's go to the Russian River Valley for our next call. Chris is waiting patiently in Monte Rio. Good morning. Hi. Um, um, I'm like the poster child for someone who should die from this disease. I have asthma and I'm 73. I, I, I am currently vaccinated and boosted with everything that I can get. And um, I wear a mask everywhere. I did everything right. And I was volunteering at a food bank and I, somebody gave me a chocolate bar. I took my mask off for maybe two minutes. And me and the man next to me, three and a half days later, um, came down with COVID. 
So I just want to say um, this is a particularly infectious type of COVID, as far as I can tell. Um, it, it was much easier to get for just the briefest exposure. I took packs with it immediately um, that the day that I was um, that I became positive and actually I spiked a fever and that's how I knew something was wrong. Um, I, I'm now that was that was I don't know my last pack of it was the third and of this month and um, I was hoping when all the symptoms went away and I um, felt so much better that I was in the clear and then three and a half days later I was slammed into again and I was thinking I could take Paxlovid again, but apparently they don't do that. Um, and I just keep sort of surfing this thing. It's, uh, I, I think I'm better and then whammo again. Um, and I'm just wondering what the trajectory is, trajectory is and also just as a, um, a real warning to people who think they're being careful. You can't be careful enough. With yeah, Chris. Thing. Chris, I want to get you an answer, and we're short on time, so uh, let me put this to Dr. Schwartzberg. It sounds like Chris is about five days into a a case of rebound. Um, First of all, my my understanding is now that Paxlovid's had full authorization, uh, a doctor could prescribe a second round to someone with rebound, right? A doctor certainly can prescribe any drug that's been approved uh, in a way he or she decides they want to prescribe it. The question is, would that really help Chris, typically rebound is less serious than the first episode, usually quite less serious than the first episode, and people get over it much more quickly, and Chris should do fine. I'm sorry she's had to go through all of this, but she should do fine with this rebound. Um, Chris also points out how contagious these new variants are. She's absolutely right. Um, One of the things uh, SARS-CoV-2 has learned in the three and a half years with us is that um, it's learned how to spread much more with much greater facility. So <clears throat> it's very, very, very hard to avoid it. Very hard to avoid it. But I'm glad Chris is okay. Yes, she's 73. Yes, she has asthma. But I'm glad she jumped on Paxlovid very quickly. And I just want to very quickly point out that you can get rebound without taking Paxlovid. Uh, as a matter of fact, there remains a debate in the literature as to whether it's more frequent or not with Paxlovid versus not, you know, versus not taking it. So um, I'm glad she took it. She certainly was a candidate for it. And I'm sorry she's got rebound, but I think she's going to be fine from what she's describing. Mm, I, I know that's cold comfort uh, when you're still feeling sick, Chris, um, but I hope that's helpful. Um, Dr. Schwartzberg, anything else, any like new evidence on other therapeutic approaches for preventing a case from turning into a serious case or into long COVID? Like where, where has the, the studies on metformin gone? I haven't seen anything new since those really exciting studies, um, earlier this summer. Um, and I really would like to see further data on that in terms of metformin preventing, helping to prevent long COVID is the main thing. And there are some trials now with metformin being used to treat long COVID to see whether that's going to have any help. Um, So yes, anxiously awaiting to see more data on metformin. I'm really looking forward to to 
although it's not around the corner, to new drugs that can be administered by nasal spray that may help treat people, and more excitingly than that, nasal spray vaccines that could help prevent people from getting infected and therefore transmitting it. So there are things that people are feverishly working on, but those things aren't uh, anywhere near ready for prime time. All right. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.